Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series by the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Jill Harper, Vice Chair of Communications on the CIA's Research Council. In this episode, we'll be hearing about a new research project published this March that was jointly sponsored by the Society of Actuaries and the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. If you're interested in hearing more about collaborative research projects that the CIA participates in, we have a Seeing Beyond Risk podcast episode that is all about collaboration and research, so check that out. The paper that we're going to be talking about today is called Classification of Risk Sharing in Pension Plans. To find this paper or any other research paper published by the CIA, visit www.cia-ica.ca, navigate to the research tab at the top, then select research projects. To help us introduce this paper, we have Doug Chandler on the phone today. Doug is the Canadian Retirement Research Actuary at the Society of Actuaries, where he is responsible for developing and completing objective research on Canadian retirement systems in order to inform public policy development and public understanding. Doug holds his fellowship designations with both the Society of Actuaries and the Canadian Institute of Actuaries, and he's the author of today's paper. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Jill. Thanks for having me. So let's start with a little bit of background. What was the motivation behind this research project? Well, if you ask somebody in the pension business about target benefit plans, so they'd probably say, I know all about those and they're not for me. But they probably only know about one kind of target plan, benefit plan. The reality is there's a whole spectrum of risk sharing possibilities in between defined benefit and defined contribution. Target benefit plans got off to a bad start in Canada because public sector employers were the first to propose them and their union took, put them down as a pure takeaway from defined benefit plans. In the private sectors, employers weren't interested in anything but DC. And so we haven't really explored the defined contribution end of the risk sharing spectrum. I wanted to draw out some boundaries along the spectrum and show how different risk sharing deals cannot be, can fit different circumstances. Hopefully when people look at all the different types of deals that are possible, they'll say, well, I didn't want that other kind of target benefit plan, but this kind looks interesting. Hopefully, when standard setting bodies and legislators are trying to figure out how to deal with these strange new beasts that are neither defined benefit nor defined contribution, they'll be able to line them up with some other old beasts that we already have in Canada and say, oh, it's like one of those things, so we can treat it the same way. Okay, that makes sense. So this is all really about classification of risk sharing. What were the four categories of risk sharing that you used in the paper? Starting at the defined benefit end of the spectrum, we have DB plans with adjustment mechanisms, conditional indexing, hybrid plans that pay better of DB and DC, that sort of thing. I'd argue the 50% rule is a form of risk sharing adjustment, and so is all the case law that says DB plan members have a claim on surplus. So Canada already has a lot of DB plans with adjustment mechanisms. Next, we have all those big jointly sponsored plans with their built-in rules for adjusting employee and employer contributions, providing pensioner increases that are dependent on fund performance, and in the most extreme circumstances, curtailing benefits. I call those plans contribution partnerships. I'd put American-style multi-employer plans and New Brunswick shared risk plans into this category as well. The third category is what I call specified contribution target benefit plans. This is what the Alberta BC expert panel had in mind a decade ago, but it's had a hard time getting any traction. Canadian multi-employer plans certainly fit into this category. So will the collective money purchase scheme that's grinding its way through the British Parliament right now. 
The British Royal Mail Plan will be the first single employer implementation, but we can expect others to follow. There are fixed employer and employee contributions with gains and losses shared amongst the plan members and between generations of plan members. Finally, we have what I call asset share plans. These are the closest thing we have to traditional DC plans. The simplest implementation would be using the new variable payment life annuity rules in the tax act to provide real pensions from existing defined contribution plans. But there's a lot more that could be done to pool risks and investment management amongst plan members without straying beyond the BC rules in the tax act and in the accounting world. These individual target benefit plans are distinguished from collective target benefit plans by the absence of reserves and the absence of intergenerational risk transfers. So I heard you mention accounting standards. Given that ultimate costs for pension plans are determined by things like funding and plan rules rather than year-to-year -year expenses, why do accounting standards matter so much? Well, in the research report, I use existing classification rules for things like tax limits, pension adjustments, and commuted values to delineate the various categories of risk sharing. But I think accounting rules for classifying pension plans into DB or DC are by far the most important. Those are the rules that are going to steer different types of employers towards different types of risk sharing deals. Not just because the IFRS or the American Accounting Standards Board or somebody else created some rules and Canadian employers are stuck with them, but because for the most part, those rules make some sense. And they do the right thing for different enterprises with different types of owners and different financial statement users, regardless of where the employees live or where the investors live. It may be true that year-to-year -year expense doesn't matter in the long term, but in the short term, it's the only thing that matters. Executives are accountable for the company's performance, and they can't wait 50 years to see how it works out. And those executives are the ones who are making the decisions about what kind of retirement income plan to sponsor. At publicly traded companies, they've replaced their DB plans with DC, at least in part so that their investors can have more clarity about the different value of the company when they're buying and selling stock. Risk sharing that spills over to retail shareholders is problematic. Okay, that makes sense. So let's get back to the categories of risk sharing. Aren't these categories of risk sharing basically just another way of saying that target benefit plans closer to sort of the defined contribution end of the spectrum are riskier for plan members than those on the other end of the spectrum? Sort of. But risk depends on investment policy, demographics, the strengths of the employer, and a lot of other things. For example, the risk of pensioners in a public sector shared risk plan might be no greater than the traditional DB plans with weak private sector sponsors and no pension benefit guarantee. The details of funding and design go a long way to mitigate risk, even within a particular category of risk sharing risk. So do you think that there's a type of risk sharing that's better than the others? Or do you prefer one type of risk sharing over other types? That's like asking me for my favorite flavor of ice cream. I like them all and I'd get tired of any one kind. One of the key takeaways from the research is that Canadian pension plans have evolved in different directions because different employment situations call for different pension deals. I think it's important that the different deals be allowed to coexist side by side and that sponsors and administrators celebrate the unique features of the deal they put together. So you mentioned that there are very few target benefit plans in Canada today. What do you think the obstacles are that are out there that are preventing plans from moving towards target benefit designs? The biggest obstacle is that you can't get there from here. If you have an existing plan, then changing it to a different risk-sharing deal is a fundamental change to the nature of the promise 
and it's not something you can do without agreement from all the parties involved or without at least a lot of consultation and uh, regulatory and legal uh, constraints. So that's been an obstacle. It's fun to set a, an imaginary plan and run a simulation out for 100 years to see what happens, but that never happens in the real world. Plans change over time, and there has to be a way to deal with that. I do address this life cycle in the report and uh, address some of the issues that happen over the life cycle of a pension plan. How do you transition from one type of risk sharing deal to another? Who has the ability to amend the plan? And that's a form of risk sharing, by the way, uh, whether we like to talk about it that way or not. And what happens when a sponsor goes out of business or shuts down a location where the plan lines up down the road? These are certainly areas where the unique character of different categories of risk sharing deals emerge. But once again, Canada already has lots of experience with risk sharing, and we can draw on that experience to see what ought to happen. And thinking a bit about research, what do you think the next steps are for research in this area? Well, the big one is putting a fair price on the risks that are risks that are shared, or a limit on just how much risk sharing is possible, especially risk sharing between generations of plan members. There are a lot of other practical problems with target benefit plans that will have to be wrestled to the ground. Things like uh, what to do with uh, alternate pension deals when it comes to surviving spouses or beneficiaries or transferred members what to do with division of pensions and marriage breakdown, how to deal with mergers and acquisitions, and what to do with things like reciprocal agreements. Those are, I would consider to be more administrative puzzles rather than fundamental research problems. Finally, an area that needs some new research is uh, variable payment life annuities, which are new to Canada. Uh, although not quite as new in the United States. I think some employers are thinking they can add a BPLA onto their existing pension plan just as a new settlement option alongside a lost in income fund, a life retirement account, or traditional annuity. Maybe even alongside a traditional pension using the same community value factors as they use now. That might work for portability prior to age 55 where the variable pension isn't going to start right away. But it's going to be problematic for sponsors who offer immediate VPLA benefits alongside other DC settlement options. Setting aside people who are leaving their jobs because they're terminally ill, different individuals have life expectancies at retirement ranging from 10 years to 30 years, and age and sex aren't the most important factors. Insurance companies can cope with this problem by simply assuming that anyone wealthy enough to be buying an annuity has above average life expectancy and pricing the poorer risks out of the market. DB sponsors can cope by simply absorbing the aggregate risk and ignoring the individual value. But with no employer backstop, those anti-selection issues will be a big deal for variable payment life annuity participants. Sooner or later, they'll notice that the executives are getting a better deal than the lower paid plan members, or that they're being denied a fair opportunity to receive a monthly pension just because they have a health impairment after reading about this monthly payment and variable payment option in their handbook for the whole career. So that's something that researchers are going to have to look at is to how can we customize annuity factors at retirement per conversion of account balances into variable payment like annuities, or how can we overcome the anti-selection problems some other way. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of interesting research to look forward to in this area. 
Thanks again for joining us today and for sharing your insights with us, Doug. Well, thank you, Jill. If you want to learn more about this study or read any other CIA research project, you can do so by visiting the website. Visit www.cia-ica.ca, select the Research tab at the top, then choose Research Projects. The Research tab also has an option to share your research ideas, so if you have any ideas or comments that you wish to share about CIA research, please reach out using that link. My name is Jill Harper, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Seeing Beyond Risk.